Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. Welcome to chapter seven. How you doing, JP? Pretty good, pretty good. Wow, this is actually the penultimate chapter. So we're like almost done with this. I think there might be like 20 tips left, which is pretty crazy. Wait, I'm Googling penultimate. <laughs> I think it just means the one before the last. Oh, last one in the series of things, second to the last. Yeah, penultimate. Wow. Okay, there we go. Learn something new every day. A little bit of SAT practice, you know, for those listeners still in high school. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we are going to be talking about chapter seven, which is called Before the Project. And I initially had interpreted this as like before you start a project from scratch. But then the more I started, you know, reviewing these notes that I took, it can also be interpreted as like approaching a GitHub issue or approaching part of a sprint, for example, or just tackling anything. Um, You don't have to be necessarily starting from scratch. All that to say is that starting anything is kind of a daunting thing because there's like a lot of unknowns. You never know when you should start, um, if you should start prototyping first. And there's all these just there's just a ton of different variables that make it seem very daunting. But the first five or so tips from this chapter, we're focusing on gathering requirements and understanding requirements. That way, when you start and you actually jump in and start officially start whatever it is that you're starting, it will feel a lot less daunting. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way that you approach this as, you know, because the chapter is titled Before the Project, I immediately read it as only new projects. And I was reading the whole thing with this context, but it's so true that every feature request or addition or change is really should be treated as a totally new project in itself. You know, different scope, you know, don't go crazy with that idea. But I really like that idea that even if you're not starting a new project, if you're doing maintenance or shipping a new feature, Treat it like this. Use these tips and apply them to it. So I'm going to blow through the tips real quick, and then we can kind of start powering through them one by one. So the first tip of the chapter was tip 51. Don't gather requirements. Dig for them. 52. Work with a user to think like a user. 53. Abstractions live longer than details. 54. Use a project glossary. 55. Don't think outside the box. Find the box. And with that, we will... We will use the unallowed term of jump into the first tip, (laughs) 51 here, don't gather requirements, dig for them. So this really is just a talking about trying to extract requirements from whoever your client may be and whoever you're working with in whatever setting you're working with. So, you know, if you're working in a development firm, that could be your product manager, it could be the marketing team, it could be your own freelance client that you're working with, you know, it could be the CEO of your company. And it's what are the things that need to be built? And this whole tip is about gathering them up. And it's saying, essentially, It's not just things you can pick up off the ground. You have to really dig for these requirements and it can be really hard and they might not be right on the surface. And it gave a lot of different examples of good requirements versus bad requirements. And, you know, something as simple as only authenticated users can view this report. You know, there's a lot of nuance to that. What defines an authenticated user? Can an authenticated user see others' reports or only their own reports? So there's a lot of nuance within these requirements that create a lot of different outcomes. And, you know, you can easily build totally in the wrong direction if you are moving toward the wrong requirement. Yeah, totally. My takeaway from this point was like, gathering requirements is not necessarily an easy thing. You don't sort of, you don't just, you don't just, 
like you said, pick them up off the ground. They're not just there. They don't just present themselves to you on a silver platter. Like, here you go. Here are the requirements. Oftentimes, it'd be nice if, like, in an ideal world, if if you just got, like, a GitHub issue and it literally had everything laid out where here are, like, all of the requirements. But then that's, like, almost doing your job for you in a way. Obviously, there's, like, a step where you have to go out and find them yourself and figure out, like, okay, I might have... Um, I might have to talk to a designer like these are the requirements for what the UI is going to look like. OK, I might have to talk to stakeholders so that I can understand like what the business goals are. And if, you know, these changes are actively reflecting those business goals, things like that. It's not just like here are the requirements. They present themselves to you, go out and implement it. And then that's like, well, everyone will be on their merry way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think out of my job, this specific piece of digging to understand what my clients actually want and defining it in a way that's buildable is the hardest part of my job. And I actually, in my day-to-day, spend most of my time doing this, digging for client requirements. Because now I do work with a couple subcontractors and a lot of my day is doing essentially what you're saying, which is working with the client to really nail down a definition of a requirement and then expressing that in a GitHub issue that is fully laid out for a developer so that they can just start powering through it and they don't have to worry about the nuances of requirements. My goal is kind of that middleman of that leading this project is to make sure that every requirement, every new issue that's given is as clear and spelled out to the T as much as possible with kind of general guidelines of requirements and the right abstractions and the general directions that I want to go. And we'll cover more about abstractions in a little bit. But, you know, Um, there's a quote from the book that I really liked. It said, quote, requirements rarely lie on the surface. They're buried deep beneath the layers of assumptions, misconceptions, and politics, unquote. And there's a lot of layers there. And some of the worst times is when your requirement isn't all in one person's head. Oftentimes it's in a whole team of people and the whole team of people, unless they're all interviewed, you won't understand the nuances of the actual business requirement. Um, This steps a little bit outside of code, to be honest, and a little bit into just understanding business practices and business processes. And a lot of what I do as a developer oftentimes bleeds into those areas. It's talking with a team, understanding how they even fit into a company, and then redefining that business process in a way that is definable from a software approach. You know, the actual logic flow of how that works and nailing that down. And it really is just trying to immerse yourself in that domain, in that space, asking a lot of questions and trying to think through all those different edge cases of what that requirement is. And so when someone tells you, you know, we need the ability for only authenticated users to view these reports, you have to ask all the questions that need to be asked to clarify that and push your client, whoever your client may be, to define terms as much as possible. Yeah, I just realized that it must be like nice for the people that are freelancing for you because you do all the legwork of like finding these requirements. I mean, obviously there might be some ambiguity where they have to ping you and be like, hey, is it like, what does this mean? But for the most part, like if you're doing your job right, they can just go and implement whatever it is that you need them to implement, which is probably nice for them and like more work for you. <laughs> yeah, and I hope so. But it, it was amazing since I've been doing this more in this role the last three or four weeks, it's amazing realizing how much of my time is spent defining requirements because my and client will request a new feature. And then I literally have to spend four to six hours just thinking through the different use cases and scenarios. And I'm not even providing mock-ups in most cases. Sometimes I do if it's a really specific interaction, but it's not even the design we're talking about. It's actually the 
orchestration of the domain and how objects should interact, what objects we're reusing or what objects we're creating, and then defining all the business logic within all those little things. Because technology isn't hard. Like if you want to send a push notification or you want to add a table to your database, like none of this stuff is difficult. Like building things is now cheap and easy and quick. It's really elegant expression of business processes is really, really difficult. And if you don't do that, you end up with just a total clusterfuck of code that doesn't represent the business process well. But then this bleeds into this whole other issue is that a lot of businesses are really poorly run and don't have well-defined processes. And there's a lot of people in companies that are just kind of pushing things from one person to the other and kind of fiddling an email all day. And I have more than once been on a software project where when we sit down and workshop and define these business processes, very shortly after their company ends up restructuring and either hiring or letting people go because they realize how ill-defined business processes are. And so really be careful working with clients, if it's not a new startup, if it's not a new project, sometimes even with a new startup, but really be careful with clients to not allow an ill-defined scope just destroy a project from the get-go. Really push your clients to understand what they need to build, try to define it out, and really you know, push to build that as clearly as possible. Totally. Yeah, this is starting to like bleed into the, like, the scope of like, business. But it's interesting because we were doing our sprint planning today at Open Listings. You know, we have two-week sprints. And I think it's official, not officially, but um, it's like Q3 for us starting now. It's like in, in Open Listings world, it's Q3. I think for everyone else, Q3 started like a couple weeks ago. Um, but that being said, when we started our sprint planning today, we had sort of reflected on what our Q3 goals were. And so we like just sort of went over them. And it's funny because my boss was like, yeah, so if you're working on something in this quarter that doesn't like really reflect our business goals for Q3, like maybe question why we're doing it and sort of like be like, hey, this doesn't really, um, <laughs> this doesn't really positively impact our business in, in the way that we had set out. Like maybe we should table this for, a different sprint for Q4 or like question like why we're making these changes because you know there's going to be bugs everywhere obviously and there's going to be things that can be tweaked till the end of time but you have to ask yourself like are we fulfilling the original requirements that we had set out for the quarter that's cool that your boss is pushing you to to think that intelligently about the business process i feel like a lot of dev teams aren't given that freedom to like raise their hand and be like um is this even valuable to our company is this even valuable to our users yeah. so that's cool that you're pushed to do that and it reminds me i don't remember this this book or the i think it was the last book domain driven design that expressed this idea of like a guiding principle or a guiding right. statement for your application like what does it do and it's like every time you think about a feature like make sure that it's equating it back to that guiding principle, that guiding feature. Yeah. All right. So that was tip number 51, which was don't gather requirements, dig for them. So tip 52 is work with a user to think like a user. And so I had initially read this tip and thought like, oh man, no, like don't think like a user because if you think like a user, you're just gonna have all these preconceived notions. You know, everyone thinks like a user and everyone has these preconceived notions about how something should work. And it all just comes from like your view of the world and your view of the world is not necessarily how a user thinks. That's just how you think. But that's not what this tip was saying. And the tip was basically saying like, if you have the opportunity to observe a user for like a week, this is much different than thinking quote unquote, like a user. It's more like you observe how a user thinks and how they interact with your application. 
and how they are, you know, making decisions. And maybe this isn't in person. Maybe this is just using like one of those services where you can like have users like record their interactions with your app. And maybe you spend like a week just doing that. Point is, you can learn a lot from the way that your users are interacting with your software or whatever it is. And doing this will like really, now we're really diving into like UX and user experience, but this will like allow you to have empathy for your users and really understand what drives them. And ultimately, because, you know, we're talking about like business goals and business requirements, this will take you a step further into being able to fulfill those requirements and actually solve business problems, which is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. This reminds me of the tip from the last book too, and keeping referencing that, but where it was read the book and it was, you know, a software developer was struggling to develop an application related to accounting. And right. so they went and grabbed accounting for dummies and started learning more about accounting in practice. But this takes that even a step further, which is, you know, the book even referenced sitting at someone's desk for a week to really understand deeply what they currently do. And whether that's using an existing piece of software before augmenting it with new features, or whether that's, you know, really carefully scouring the logs of a single user, if your privacy policy permits, to understand how users are actually using your software and to start understand, you know, how you can help them in that more. A recent feature we actually shipped for the tutoring application that we both work with, you know, WizTutor, where you can find a book and in-person tutor. We've talked about this in the past. You know, we noticed through the users and their interactions and in sharing with us that they oftentimes before booking a single tutor will message three and four tutors. And so we actually built this new feature where if you're a brand new user, it prompts you in one input box to send a message to three or four tutors right off the bat. So you don't have to sit and send new messages to each. You can kind of blast a message to a bunch of new tutors. And that insight was really derived from observing what our users are doing and trying to give them those shortcuts to what they're accomplishing. Um, the other thing that I really liked from the book was a quote, it's important to discover the underlying reason why users do a particular thing rather than just the way they currently do it, unquote. And this really gets to another thing, which is just, you know, just because a business is doing something in some way currently doesn't mean the software has to do it in the exact same way. Maybe there's a shorter road to accomplish that, or maybe there is some more automation you can leverage from turning this into a cloud application. You know, I was actually kind of met with a new client, a prospective new client today, and they have these like five Excel spreadsheets that run their whole company. So they have 15 people and they keep these in a Dropbox and these changes often have merge conflicts and they literally <laughs> run everything from these, I think it's like eight or nine Excel spreadsheets that have a bunch of different tabs with them. And they're like, oh, like we wanna build this into our own custom web app to kind of run our own systems internally. And you know, it's really, a CRUD database system is what they're looking for. But it was so nice because they're able to send me some of their existing spreadsheets and I can exactly see the way that they're currently working, what data they're sharing, who's editing and writing that data, and I can start to understand their business processes. So try to be creative about how you can think like a user, quote unquote. You know, maybe it's by gathering their current systems or observing their current software systems if you're building a new one, or, you know, actually requesting, which I've done in the past, the physical forms, the paperwork forms that they're filling out. So you can understand who this is going to, following that paper trail and starting to automate the stuff in ways that's a lot more intelligent. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing is understanding their motivations for doing something. That way you can 
find a plan of attack and maybe like a b test a couple of different approaches to solve their their initial problem it's not always just like um you know it's not always just what it seems to be on the surface it's sort of like yeah. when it's sort of like when a customer complains about a problem you don't just like go out and immediately fix that problem like oh i i think if a, if a customer complains to you like oh i think this cancel button should be on the right because of this you don't just like make the cancel button on the right because they said so you have to like understand like why they want the cancel button there absolutely i, I just another quick one is there was a messaging tool in a platform that i manage where you know the administrators are messaging a bunch of the different users this is for the health coaching platform and there was this behavior that i noticed in the coaches just in screen shares because every once in a while when i'm on a call with one of the users and users i'll just like hey you know do what you normally do and i'll observe what they're doing and they were doing this thing where they would go into the messaging tool and they would click into every single thread for the people that they manage and there's like you know 20 people and they would just kind of click through click through click through and what they were trying to do is make sure that there wasn't any recent messages that they haven't followed up with and oh, so no. yeah that's all they were trying to do and so it's kind of like you do on your iphone which i think we all do sometimes is because like once you read it it's dismissed you kind of go into your messages before bed like make sure there's nothing you didn't follow up on and and that's kind of what they were doing and so then I literally surfaced on their dashboard I, dashboard. I made it a lot more clearer in their user dashboard that they have no unread inbound messages. And then I also surfaced the last message received and their last message sent. So they can easily see at a glance really quickly. It's not the most beautiful interaction, but they can see if their last message sent is newer than their last message received. They know everything's been followed up with. There's, mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no new messages that haven't been followed up on. So, you know, that's one of those things that's like, really an odd nuance that this user was doing, but it wasn't until I sat alongside them and saw how they were using it that I was able to surface these simple features that really helped them a lot. Totally. So the next tip, tip 53, is abstractions live longer than details. And this story of this tip really aged the book because it was talking a lot about <laughs> Y2K. Yeah. And it was like, oh, the Y2K bug and how that struck and how that happened. But one of the lessons was kind of interesting is that, you know, Everybody around Y2K, if you don't know what the problem was, maybe some of our listeners weren't even born. I remember Y2K very clearly. Um, anyway, you know, the problem with Y2K is that dates were being stored as two digits. So it's like, you know, 98, 99. And so the system, everyone, the humans would assume that it's 1999, but the computer wouldn't know whether that's going to roll over. So, you know, the big fear was that the dates were going to be 1901 instead of 2001. It wouldn't roll over properly and everything would blow up and everything would go to hell. But the abstraction that was there is referencing dates as two digits and that the idea of referencing dates of two digits went all the way back, like way, way back historically on paper. And it was an abstraction that was in everybody's mind that everybody knew. And the idea that the author was making, the point they were making is that this, this simple abstraction of abstracting a date into two digits carried all the way over into all this software, all the way over from paperwork that was carried over. And so the lesson to take away is that when you pull out these concepts and tease out these requirements, these abstractions and things you pull out have a lot of value and a lot of staying power. And that abstraction, that high level abstraction lives a lot longer than your, your specific implementation details or the way that it's specifically or what technology stack you're being run on. So that's kind of the takeaway I took. So it was really important to think through these really intelligently and try to make really elegant abstractions. Yeah, dude, I think the Y2K like software um, disaster, I think like some companies actually got burned by that because they didn't handle it correctly. 
Yeah, I think there was. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I digress. But yes, abstractions live longer than details. So it, this, yeah, everything you said, totally, totally true. And it's also say is that like, don't sweat the implementation details. You should always sort of be thinking about what the requirements are from a high level. And, you know, store those implementation details into a service object, you know, and uh, have a clean interface so that you can uh, <laughs> so that you can have a nice interface to hide behind when you have nasty spaghetti implementation. Yeah, absolutely. And the book said it really well with this quote, quote, invest in the abstraction, not the implementation. Abstractions can survive the barrage of changes from different implementations and new technologies, unquote. So the idea is that if you have a well-formed, concise distillation of the business processes and requirements, then that can carry forward and really serve you really well. And this tip, more than anything to me, is a lot of what we learned in domain-driven design. I was which just about is, to say that. <laughs> it, it really is, which is really thinking through a good structure and organization around your domain and keeping that ubiquitous language going, <laughs> I think which em- leads us into our next tip. I think most of these tips are like very domain-driven design yeah. worthy in terms of mentions. But tip number 54 is use a project glossary. And this is all about hashtag ubiquitous language. And the tip itself is really says like, create and maintain a single source of all specific terms and vocabulary for a project. And to me, this just screams ubiquitous language because the authors themselves even say like, Hey, this is like a document that you want to be like to share. It's like a living document that has all these, you know, terms that might not really make sense in the context of other applications, but they make sense in the context of your application. And so you have to establish this ubiquitous language so that you and your stakeholders and anyone who partakes in this project knows exactly what a customer is, you know, because a, cust- a customer and a user might be two different things. Yeah. You know, for like open listings, we have users, but we have like agents, but we have buying agents and we have selling agents. And so, you know, all of these things have very different meanings. And so it's like really important for everyone who's on a project to understand what all of these different terms in this ubiquitous language mean. How does open listings accomplish this? Like, how did they onboard you to the domain and those nuances of users and stuff? It was definitely just like in that first week that was um, real estate 101. And it was a really nice, concise, like 30 minute meeting that I had that that really spelled everything out. You know, after that, I was like, oh, I, I get it. And these are just things that you would know if you've ever gone through the process of buying a house. I feel like you buy a house once, you kind of know most things in the domain. Like if you're technical enough and you've bought a house once or maybe even twice, you can probably, and you saw that there was a problem, you can probably make an app to solve this problem. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened like for open listings to come to fruition as a company. But yeah, it was really just like the onboarding of like Realty 101. Cool. So you guys don't necessarily have a project glossary, quote unquote. I think we might actually have a like small document of like list of terms. I I feel like I've seen this floating around. I could just be making this up or imagining it, but I definitely feel like I saw like a PDF or like a Word document that was like, this means this. Buying agent is this. Escrow means this. But it's I not do- something that's constantly, re- like you guys don't have a Bible you're constantly referring to, referring to and using in that way. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) Okay. I was just curious. You know, in projects I manage, because I do have different contractors come on and off of them, I really try to maintain a really good 
domain definition and you know definition of terms. So this idea of a project glossary in my projects is the readme and it's a good, you know, probably 8 900 maybe 1200 words depending on what the project is that lists out, you know, what are the main six models, how do they interact, what are the main specific nuances of those models and I work really hard to make sure that is updated and tell everyone who works with me like, "Hey, if you notice an inconsistency on how we're using an object and how it's there, let me know and let's talk about that and make sure that that's reconciled. Because it's really important that we all understand how these objects are being used and what they are. The only thing I don't love about that solution is it's not surfaced to the client. And I would love a way in the future soon to be able to surface all of the documentation of the project to the client side so that they can understand everything and kind of onboard and understand how we see the project and make sure that ubiquitous language is consistent between the two. And I've been like, I've been looking so hard into like different ways to do auto-generate documentation, like from your models and everything's just so comment heavy and <laughs> it's hard. It really gets in the way of the code when it's like done in an automatic way. So I haven't found a really elegant way to do that beyond putting in the readme for now. Seems to be a decent solution. So that's what I've been doing. But I've gotten a huge amount of value from that idea of a project glossary. And I love this title of it. Like, I'm going to call it that straight up now. Yeah, kind of a tongue twister. Project glossary. It's like project <laughs> grossly. <laughs> Too many L's and R's in, in this two-word phrase. But yeah, I totally agree. Um, had what you said about generating documentation. It's very comment heavy. And I used to be really against it. Um, because there's things like yard doc for Ruby and there's like JS doc or ES doc for like JavaScript. And I, I started trying to implement that on the mobile app repository. Mm. And I will say there's like definitely two sides to it. Like on one hand, it's nice that you have all this documentation that gets generated and it's not even so much like the documentation that gets generated, but like when you work on a big code base, it's nice to see like, oh, this is what this function is. These are what the parameters are. And this is what the expected return value is. And then you have like a nice little one sentence of like why you might call this function. And then like a couple descriptions, like let's say you have named parameters and you have like, you're passing in an object or like a hash or whatever it is. And you can like say exactly what you're expecting in that hash, which is nice. It's nice like, because as someone who's coding, I might not touch this function for two weeks. And if I go back to this function within like a second, I can understand exactly what it's doing without having to um, like throw a binding prior debugger or a console log in there, whatever it is. But on the other hand, there's like the other side to it where it's like, I feel like your code should be expressive enough. Like your method should be named well enough and your, your parameters and your arguments should be named properly enough so that like you don't necessarily need documentation. However, I will say that it is a necessary evil because when your code base does get to be like really massive, there are times where it's like, this is the best possible name I could come up, come with, come up for this, you know, function or this method. And it's only ever going to be called in X, Y, Z scenarios. Like sometimes it's better to just document those things. I don't know. There's like definitely, I definitely see both sides to it. Yeah. I think either way, though, there's a lot of benefit if you are going to be commenting through your code like that to abstract it into a single repository. Sure. Because it's more likely that it's going to be referenced and updated. I just, so many times comments in code, even my own code, they just get stale and then I'll get updated when the method gets updated or when the function gets updated. And But I guess there's pros and cons and I definitely think there is code that should be commented. Yeah, it's just a hard one. But I think regardless of what level of documentation you use on specific methods or functions or within classes or what that looks like, 
a basic couple paragraph project glossary that defines the main <laughs> terms of a project could be super, super helpful. Totally. So the last tip of the chapter is tip 55. Don't think outside the box, find the box. And I loved this whole topic. This whole section was awesome. And it's a lot about trying to think creatively about the constraints you're given and about when you're trying to re define requirements, how you can think creatively about it. And so it opens up with this quick story, and I'm going to read it real quick, which we've probably all heard it, but it's only a couple sentences. So, quote, Gordius, the king of Pythagoria, once tied a knot that no one could untie. It was said that he who solved the riddle of the Gordian knot would rule all of Asia. So along comes Alexander the Great, who just chops the knot to bits with his sword. Just a little different interpretation of the requirements, that's all. And he did end up ruling most of Asia, unquote. So, you know, the idea, we've probably all had that heard this story of the Gordian knot, which is this incredible knot that no one can untie, but then he just comes and chops it in half. And so he thought outside the requirements given to him. So it wasn't really outside the box, but it was within the constraints that he had, he came up with a way more simple solution than anyone was thinking of. And so that's this, this idea that the book is talking about. Uh, another quote that I'll say really quickly is, quote, when Faced with an impossible problem, identify the real constraints. Ask yourself, does it even have to be done this way? Does it have to be done at all? Is this something we can just throw out the window? Unquote. Um, and I just love this idea of this is an opportunity, and this is when this is when I get really excited about code and how expressive it can be and how much you can really change a business process and innovate. And this is where a lot of that happens is when you're defining requirements, pushing your stakeholders and clients to think outside of the current way that it's being done and think outside the current constraints. Yeah, I really like this idea of finding the box. So when I get assigned, you know, an issue or something or whatever it is I'm working on in the sprint, or, um, or yeah, I have this weird reflex of being afraid of the unknown, whether or not a problem is actually hard or not. It's like, okay, JP, you're assigned this, this, and this. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm going to tackle this issue. But for some reason, the unknown is like scary. And so like, I see it as like, oh shit, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is going to be absolutely bonkers. Like I'm going to have to do so many different, I don't even know how I'm going to even begin doing this thing. So the way I like imagine this is it's sort of like you're being dropped into a very dark room and because that's the unknown, you don't know what's around you. You don't know how you're going to, you know, get out of this room per se. Right. But to me, the idea of like finding the box is really like gathering the requirements and sort of like illuminating your way and finding out like where the edges of that box are. And then, you know, it turns out most of the time, you know, these like big, scary unknowns once you like define what is actually unknown tends to be not so scary after all. So like maybe what you're faced with is actually very hard or maybe it's actually very easy. Regardless of the level of difficulty, knowing whether or not it's like hard or easy actually makes it a lot less intimidating. And so I think this is sort of my big takeaway of like actually finding the box and like finding out what the requirements are is like once you have a good understanding of what you actually need to do, that initial you know, that initial fear of not knowing anything or the, the initial fear of like the unknown really just like fades away really fast. And, and so, yeah, so like when you find the constraints of the box, you know, you can solve like the problem at hand and you can like figure out like what's really in front of you. 
Absolutely. One of the examples that I think of from this is, again, going back to WizTutor, you know, there was this big issue with low conversions on new student signups. And it was always they would abandon, of course, when the credit card form came up. And so it was this idea of, you know, and what I was tasked to do is try to improve the conversions of the credit card form. And so my way of the thinking within the edges of the box in that solution was, why don't we allow them to book a tutoring session without even having a credit card added? But then you actually have to add a credit card before that session happens. So there's like this concept of reminders and follow-ups and it cancels unless you add a credit card. But then the, the end user, the student, is invested. They've already booked. They have someone confirmed. And so they're a lot more likely to convert and put in their credit card. But, you know... I was asked to improve the conversion on a credit card form, like make it easier, make it prompt in a smarter way, but I just completely dropped it. We got rid of it and the conversions went way up. And so that was just one example of a way that I expressed the constraint, but within that, like really thought outside of the way that it was currently being done to try to come up with a different solution. And so, yeah. go ahead. I was gonna say that sort of reminds, like bringing up WizTutor, that sort of reminds me when in the first rebuild of the app, before we made it into... React Native from Ionic, you and I were having this issue of like, well, how are we going to do this whole timer thing to like stop um, bookings? And because, you know, like, let's say that they're in a 3G network or something, or they're, you know, camping in the woods for whatever reason, and they're having a tutoring session out there, really sketchy, don't know why that would happen. But let's say they have no internet, and they try to um, stop this timer. Because the way we had it before was that a tutor would hit start and stop. And that length of time would be how long their tutoring session was for. And we were like constrained to thinking about it in that manner. And so we'd have all these issues where people would have their internet like drop off and, you know, we wouldn't be able to persist that data to the database because of, because of that reason. Yeah. And then we were trying or to re-implement like users, this. users would forget to stop a timer. Right. And then they'd or be messaging it. us. Yeah, they wouldn't stop the timer or start the timer. And we would constantly get these customer support issues of, hey, we need a way to edit the completed timer. So once the timer's done, we need a way to edit it or we need a way to handle this timer offline. And we were going back and forth on all these different solutions to manage an offline timer yeah. and cache <laughs> it and then push up the start and end times when it was done. Anyway. Yeah, and then what we ended up doing was just like, well, well, why don't we just have tutors submit like the length of the duration of their tutoring session? Because if that fails, they could just do it at whatever, at their own leisure, at any time they wanted to. Like 30 minutes is always going to be 30 minutes, whether or not it's today right. or tomorrow. Um, and it's just funny because to think like we're actually constrained to, we, ha we haven't found the outer limits of the box. We were just like in one tiny portion of it. Yeah. Um, and it created so many more complexities in the requirements because there was this idea of this timer and syncing the timer to the server. And it's like, it's so much more <laughs> simple to just post a tutoring session with all the tutoring session details. And I, I think the biggest thing, especially when require, when defining requirements is name it, find the noun in the thing you're trying to accomplish and then make it crud, create, read, update, destroy. That's it. And it's amazing how far you can take just naming things, making them a resource, naming things, making them a resource. And the more you can think in that way and restfully, the more structured things get and you're just posting and reading items regardless of the implementation. And it makes things so much more straightforward. And like this whole section of this book to me and even domain-driven design to me can all be <laughs> summed up in the idea <laughs> of give it a noun and make it a resource. If you can just continue to do that more and more and more, that gets you a huge way toward 
getting an elegantly defined um, requirement. The requirement tried to distill it down to a resource and make it something you can just rest back and forth, you know. Totally. That's, totally. that's my two cents. Totally with you on that. Yeah. And so uh, that sort of just wraps up our chapter. Do you have any other final thoughts? No, I'm excited to be moving into the next book. And if you guys want to, you can feel free to visit iterationpodcast.com. It's actually survey.iterationpodcast.com. Is that where it is? Survey. Yeah. Survey.iterationpodcast.com. You can fill that out to vote on our next book. And if you do, I've actually got some stickers. I just sent out a batch yesterday of a couple stickers. So if you're listening, you'll probably get in some soon. A couple people have filled that out. And if you do, and you do choose to enter your address, I'll ship you some stickers if you're here in the U.S., um, you want to jump into our picks? Yes. Okay, so I've been reading this book by Big Nerd Ranch on learning Swift. It's actually one that Dale had recommended a really long time ago, and I didn't like oh, really? I didn't know like anything about programming, and I was like, Dale, like, hey, what can I um <laughs> like what resources did you use to learn? And he was like, Oh, Big Nerd Ranch, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I have been so like I'm promising myself that I'm actually gonna go through with like learning a new language because you know i tried picking up elixir and not that i have anything against i still really like that language and i wish i could go deeper into it but i just have like no real reason to other than like brain expansion i guess but with swift i don't know it just feels like right i like want to learn there's a couple things there's a couple check boxes that it checks i want to learn a language that is like typed and i want to learn a language that I can build projects with immediately. And I feel like there are a couple of iOS apps in the back of my head that I want to sort of tinker with. And so those are sort of the check boxes. And it's a really nice language. It sort of just like makes sense. Like I'm such a Mac fanboy. It's like, why not learn the language that Apple had released open source? <laughs> cool. How far are you through that book? Have you just kind of started perusing it or? Um, so I'm like halfway through. So I finished like all of the basic stuff. It's amazing what it's amazing how similar languages are once you've programmed for like longer than a couple of years. Everything is just like more or less the same thing. I think it's I think the the issue is is actually building something that's non-trivial. So like once you finally like get past all the syntax, that's cool. Once you get past like building another to-do app or building another crud app, like actually trying to build something like fun in a new language, I think is like where you finally, you know, move to the next level. Because I remember sort of these, these, the, like the, the feeling of feeling like a beginner again when I jumped from Ruby to JavaScript. And it wasn't really until I made the first iteration of the WizTutor mobile app that I was like, oh, okay, I'm like actually kind of proficient at this. But I had to make so many stupid toy apps before that. I made Woof. Um, I like made a bunch of playground apps. I made a bunch of to-do apps, but it's not until I made something that was like non-trivial that I felt like, oh, this is actually like, I don't know, like I couldn't tell you the moment at which I was like, holy shit, I don't know what I'm doing. And oh, I actually kind of do know what I'm doing. But it's sort of that like consistency of like always building. Yeah, I think just building stuff is the best way to learn something new by far, absolutely. Super cool. And actually, if you get better with Swift and understand Xcode and that stack better, doesn't that help you to some degree with React Native work? It does, yes. And okay, that was another checkbox that I forgot to mention is that I hate that as a React Native developer, every time I have to open up Xcode, I'm just like, fuck this. It's like so complicated. Everything's breaking. For some reason, I have all these compile errors. I don't know anything that's going on. 
but I'm like going through simultaneously this like Udemy course of like iOS, like from beginning to bit ba- from, from, from beginning to master or whatever the hell these like clickbait <laughs> courses are called. But it does help you because like you can use Swift and Objective C in your React Native apps. And I wanted right. to make it so that like when I hit like a, a block on the the iOS side of like React Native, I wouldn't feel like so stuck and helpless and like aimlessly copying and pasting things into Xcode, you know, crossing my fingers that I'm not totally destroying the app that I'm building in React Native. Um, and I will say that it's interesting seeing how iOS development is because you actually like drag and drop, you know, buttons and text and input labels that that come from like the UI kit, like Apple's like standard library API, and you like drag them onto like a canvas and you rearrange it around. And when you actually look at the source code of that, of these like storyboards, it's actually like XML, which is like very, very similar to React. So it almost is like under the hood, very similar. You know, there's like lifecycle hooks inside of like these Swift classes that get created inside of your iOS projects. And there's things like view did load. And I was like, oh, that's very similar to React, how we have like component did mount. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they had intentionally done that to sort of like mirror what's happening on the iOS side. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's like a, a common pattern that already exists and I just have yet to discover it. But I'm already seeing like some similarities between, you know, building apps in Swift and building apps in React Native, which is kind of cool. Super cool. My pick for this week is Pusher. It is a paid service, but they have a free tier that allows you to have tons of use, not sponsored or anything. I have a project that relied on Action Cable really heavily, but I was trying to do Action Cable across a React Native application. I don't have any issues with Rails Action Cable web-to-web, browser-to-browser at all. It holds up really well in production, and I really like it in general, but I was having a lot of issue with a React Native project that JP was actually originally helping me on, but he's off that project now, where I was trying to send these Action Cable signals back and forth and maintain these WebSocket connections across a distributed devices, you know, so I don't know necessarily the device that's interacting with this real-time channel. And WebSockets, if you're not familiar, is just basically the idea that you can, in real time, send and exchange data with another user. And these are implemented in all types of different li- libraries and frameworks. But Pusher basically abstracts a lot of that into its own service. And um, I will let you know how the build fully goes. I'll do a follow-up in a week or so, but I am rewriting basically everything that was Action Cable into Pusher for this React Native build. And so far, it's been a lot less painless. It's been a lot less painful, I should say. It's been a lot less painful. And I can see where this is going to be really, really helpful because they have whole libraries, client libraries for both Rails on the back end, React Native on the front end, and all types of different libraries. There's a JavaScript library that allows me to kind of abstract this idea of real time into the service. There's a really good debugger console that's really nice. I can see everyone who's connected and the data they're sending and it's sending back and forth. it's really, really nice, especially for things like presence, like who's currently online and connected to a socket that can be really hard to accomplish. So I have really been liking it. It's been really good. And the pricing seems sensible for what it is. And uh, I will update you to let you know how it goes. Yeah, it's kind of uh, magic. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it definitely is. I am all for magic when I'm behind on a project like this. <laughs> Sweet. Cool. So we will uh, see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. All right. Peace. Thank you.